Our reading is from John chapter 19, verses 16 to 30. And that is 1,087 in the Church Bibles. John chapter 19, verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, 
And so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's just such a joy for our two churches and visitors to be able to join together. Thank you, Steve, so much for your welcome and all of you from Christchurch for your hospitality for us as this happens on this uh, recurring basis. And it is, it is one of the special moments of the year to be able to celebrate the crucifixion of Jesus Christ together like this. Steve chose my text for me, and it's one of the shortest that I think I've ever preached on. If you look at verse 30, it's simply three words, a single word in Greek. It is finished. Let's pray for a minute and ask God to help us understand it. Our minds, Lord, need to be instructed. Our hearts need to be touched. Our imaginations need to be lifted, our wills to be retuned and bent back into true. What we need, Lord, is your word and you yourself in your word. Speak to us, we pray, for your name's sake. Amen. So in John's Gospel, these are Jesus' final words. It is finished. But what was finished, and what did he mean by that? I was talking to someone recently, I can't remember who, they were uh, talking about a sporting occasion that afternoon. They'd either been playing netball or football, I can't remember which, and I said, how did it go? And they said, well, we lost 13-1. And I always try and think of positive things to say in those kind of situations, but words escaped me at that moment. And I can imagine that that team of either netballers or footballers at the end saying, thank goodness, that's over. Is that the kind of spirit in which Jesus is speaking? Or imagine someone with a really painful medical condition and the surgery's been delayed and delayed and delayed and at last the surgery happens and they can say, thank goodness, it's finished, the pain is over. Is is that what he's saying? If so, of course, then it shows that God himself in his incarnate son can identify with us in our bad experiences and our longing for them to come to an end. Is it perhaps like that end-of-term feeling that uh, undergraduates and uh, school students alike have? At last, we've got to the end, and undergraduates and school students, your teachers also have the same feeling. As the end of a long term comes, and everyone in the school or the university is saying, oh, thank goodness, that's over. Is that the spirit of this? That Jesus, who's come to live in 
our life and suffer in our life is saying, at last, it's over. Well, it's a little more than that. There is here something in this short span of three words of deep profundity and meaning that goes beyond simply saying that God understands where we go through things and long for them to come to an end and have a sense of relief at the end of them. There was another Cambridge preacher preaching a mile or so away in the middle of town, Charles Simeon, who said, since the foundation of the world, there was never a single word uttered as, as this word in which such diversified and important matter was contained. Every word indeed that proceeds from our Saviour's lips deserves the most attentive consideration. But this word, it is finished, eclipses it all. To do justice to it is beyond the ability of men or angels. Its height and depth and length and breadth are absolutely unsearchable. Well, he was a much better preacher than me, and so I feel I've got my work cut out. But it does mean more. The way that the uh, word was used uh, in, in, in the everyday parlance was a bit more like this. Someone running a marathon and running a good race and running a good time and beating their personal best and arriving at the finish and saying, it's finished. A note of completion, of fulfillment and of triumph. That's how the word was often used. How can that be what Jesus is saying when he's dying on a cross? To understand, to understand more fully what's happening here, we can trace the idea of Jesus finishing things in the three places we find them in John's Gospel. And that's instructive because it helps us understand why this is more than Jesus simply coming to the end of a period of suffering and crying out in relief. Back in chapter 4 and verse 34, Jesus says to his disciples, when they're wanting to bring him food because they know he must be hungry, and he says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, that's the Father, and to finish his work. What mattered to Jesus more than anything else was accomplishing a mission that God had given him. So the cry, it is finished, is more than, oh, thank goodness that's over. It's more akin to the marathon runner, the cry of triumph. It's more akin to someone saying, mission accomplished. But what was that mission? What was it? In a fascinating article in this week's Spectator magazine, the Uh, ancient historian and popular uh, historical writer Tom Holland uh, takes some time exploring the message of the cross as he sees it. And the utter strangeness of the idea that someone who was crucified could later become worshipped as God. They were used to the idea in the ancient world of, of God's coming on earth. But the idea of God's coming on earth was that they would come as victors and heroes and kings, he said. The measure of divinity on earth was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it for oneself. But then he traces how this idea affected first the early Christians and then spread 
to do something significant at the heart of Western civilization, to define our understanding of what it means to be human. I can't trace the whole argument for you. I, I think it's available online. It's a brilliant piece. But he says that the effect of the teaching of a crucified God was to say, in the words of another writer, that the measure of a man's compassion for the lowly and suffering comes to be the measure of the loftiness of his soul. Because at the heart of things, there is God, weak and identifying with the weak and the suffering. And Holland goes on in, an, in, in a brilliant article addressed to people in our contemporary world who are now anti-Christian, saying, actually, you have to realize that the values of compassion and a regard for humanity and a care for the weak and the vulnerable, they don't rest on something that someone invented in the 18th century once Christianity had been abolished. They rest not just on an idea, but on the teaching of the crucified God. And it is Christianity that has given that to Western culture, which at its best cares for the weak and the vulnerable and sees that as noble and right. Well, it's a brilliant piece. It's well worth reading. And he gets so much right, but he misses the main point. It's like that old saying about going to see uh, Shakespeare's play Hamlet and Hamlet doesn't appear. Hamlet without the prince. Holland gets so much right about the impact of the cross in Western civilization, but he misses the main point. Jesus' mission was not just to come and establish that the weak and the suffering matter because God has become weak and suffered. He's come to do that and something far more than that. We see that in the next time in John's Gospel where uh, this idea of completing the Father's work comes. It's in John 17 and in verse 4, though I'm going to read verse 3 as well. No, let's, let's look at verse 2. John 17 and verse 2. He addresses his Father in prayer and he says, You granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The mission was to bring us to know God for ourselves. That's the work that is completed on the cross. Not simply an example of how to live, but eternal life itself through Jesus Christ. Verse 4. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing, same idea, the work you gave me to do. And he's looking forward to the completion of this work to bring eternal life. And if you're here and you simply see <clears throat> Jesus Christ as an example, yes, he is an example to you, but so much more. He is the one who has come to bring you into eternal life and a relationship with God himself. And then there's the third example in, in, in John's Gospel where this idea of finishing is. And we're back to our passage because it's just a couple of verses before in verse 28 of John 19. When Jesus, by this point, of course, is on the cross. 
Later, John writes, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Note again the idea of things being finished, his work being done. And note the connection with the fulfillment of scripture. We've seen how Jesus came to bring eternal life, but how would he bring eternal life? Would he come, uh, would he bring it just by coming on earth and sort of shining the sunbeams of his face upon us and saying, come and believe in me? No, it needed more than that. And the whole Old Testament prepares us to understand why more was needed. He refers to one of the Psalms, which talks about the suffering of the righteous and the thirst of crying out to God in thirst. And implicitly with that, he refers to the whole Old Testament pointing to the sinfulness of every single man and woman and our need of a saviour. The Old Testament sacrifices that point forward with a bloody finger through the centuries to Calvary, all needing to be fulfilled on the cross by him. There's another article in the Spectator. It's a particularly good one with three or four things actually of great interest to Christians. There's a whole, there's an article here about why hymns are a good idea. Well, none of us needs to be persuaded of that. But again, it's interesting to see that being put to people who are not conventionally in the same kind of churches as we are. Thank God for hymns, the writer says. We need them more than ever. And she says, if we're addicted to politics as most of us are, we spend our days watching, listening to, and reading people squabbling shouting over each other, being vile about each other, blaming each other, and being withering about everyone but themselves. That has become the climate in which we live, one where it's not done for anyone to admit that they're wrong or weak or sorry. How powerful it is then when singing a hymn in a pew to find ourselves singing aloud and communally without having to look anyone else in the eye about our inner disorder, sorrow and frailty. Hymns give us an unembarrassing platform to utter those admissions of defenselessness and our need of forgiveness. That's what he was doing on the cross, doing all that was needed to bring us forgiveness. And how the anger and the bitchiness of our public life needs people who will admit, not that other people are wrong, but that each of us is wrong. And that we've wronged not just one another, but we've wronged God himself by failing to surrender ourselves to him and to his will. And how glorious it is to know that God himself has reached out to those sorts of people and come and done everything needful to bring us back to him. The emphasis here is on the completeness of that work, the perfect sacrifice, leaving nothing that remained for any of us to do. The glory is here of someone who's fulfilled totally the mission given to him. A mission to stand in our place. A mission to take our punishment. 
a mission to die our death, a mission to be made sin for us, to become unrighteousness for us so that we can become the righteousness of God. And the emphasis here in what he says is it's totally fulfilled. There is a way of uh, uh, analysing how groups operate in in, in teams, in in offices and uh, workplaces and so on called the Belbin system. Uh, Belbin was a Cambridge person at one point, I think, and uh, it's a fruitful exercise for a team to go through. We did it with some of our staff team a few years ago. We might do it again at some point. And Belbin has this range of different ways that people behave in teams. So there's the resource uh, researcher, the person who's always looking outside of the team to bring ideas in. There's the chair, the person who gets people working together. There's the plant, the person who has ideas. I, I could go on, there's 11 or 12 of them. You don't want to hear them all. But one of them, has a shortened form CF, completer, finisher. This is the sort of person who gets the job done. And every team needs someone like that. When we did it, um, we we were scoring each other and uh, uh, the person concerned and all the rest of the team had this person and everyone in the team recognized this person and our staff team had this particular attribute that they got things done. It wasn't me. (laughs) Well, the Lord Jesus Christ would have worked, I think, in an amazing way in any kind of team. Probably had all sorts of attributes, but he certainly had this one. He was a completer finisher. And the message to us this morning is just so glorious. It's just so wonderful. He has completed. He has finished. He has done everything needed to fulfill the Father's mission, to bring eternal life to us, to complete everything the Old Testament was pointing to about human sinfulness and the need for a sacrifice in our place. He has completed it. He has finished it. He has done absolutely everything. And so the point at which this intersects with our inner psychology is something like this. I, the sort of person who's wanting to add something to Jesus or fearing you have to do something yourself. You know how sometimes when you invite people around for a meal and uh, you're getting it already and they'll arrive and they'll say, is there anything we can do to help? And it's a lovely thing to offer. And very often there is and sometimes there isn't. But when we think of Jesus dying on the cross, we don't have to say to him, is is there anything I can do to help? And yet many of us actually are doing something like that inside. Or think of a new house that you've had built. Maybe you're the sort of person who uh, uh, managed to make enough money to have your own house built. And you get some builders and they do it for you and it's all finished. And they, the, the guy in charge, the project manager, welcomes you in. And you say, well, I think I'm just going to, to, to finish this, this bit off. Well, maybe it would be right for you to do so in those circumstances, but not with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's done everything to build that house and just to welcome you in. How does this hit different kinds of individual? Well, there's not good enough for God, Nick, who's not a Christian in any recognizable sense in terms of the Bible, but kind of would, would, would long to be but just feels he can never be good enough for God. 
let me tell you, if you're not good enough for God, Nick, and someone's brought you here today and you're not yet a Christian, you're thinking, I'll never be good enough for God. You're absolutely right about that. But Jesus has done everything to bring you to God and give you eternal life. Even this morning, you can put all that not good enough for God, keeping you away from God's stuff to one side and just come and surrender to Christ and trust in his finished work. Or it may be groaning with guilt, Georgina. And groaning with guilt, Georgina, can be someone who's not yet a Christian and who's who's working herself to the bone, trying to make up for the wrong things she's done and never getting there. I say to you, come and believe in Jesus. He's done everything necessary. But actually, churches are full of people like groaning with guilt, Georgina, who have become Christians but revert to that pre-Christian mindset. Just hear the Lord Jesus Christ saying to you this morning, it's finished. I've done it. You can rest completely on me. There is nothing for you to do to pay God for your sins. Or there may be self-sacrificing Simon, who's very much aligned with what Tom Holland, the ancient historian, was writing about the impact of the cross on Western history. And you find Jesus Christ, the man for others, deeply inspiring. And you identify with the weak. And you identify with the vulnerable. This is really significant to you. And you revere Jesus. But actually, there's an incompleteness in your understanding of what Jesus is about. You may have been in church for years or decades, but you need to understand that Jesus says... It's finished. There is a work that's been done. Do something more than simply trying to imitate me. Start trusting me as well as following me in imitation. Or perhaps as frequently frazzled Frankie, who just gives out signals all the time of being over busy. Now, that's a, a very common problem in a city like Cambridge, and there can be all sorts of roots to it. And there can be many biblical roots out of it. But at least one route <clears throat> into being permanently frazzled is not to be at ease with God through Jesus Christ and to be content with his finished work. And when that is at the center of your life, Even though you may be ever so hard-working, the frazzled quality tends to diminish. Hudson Taylor, the founder of China in the mission, meditated on these words, it is finished. And he wrote, There dawned upon me the joyous conviction that since the whole work was finished and the whole debt was paid upon the cross, there was nothing for me to do but fall upon my knees except the Saviour and praise him forevermore. An evangelist called Alexander Wooten was approached by a young man who said, what must I do to be saved? Wooten replied, it's too late. The man became alarmed, asking, do you mean that it's too late for me to be saved? Is there nothing I can do? Wooten replied, too late. It's already been done. It's finished. The only thing you can do is believe. Are you doing that this morning? Will you let God lead you deeper into that this morning if you are already? 
Bruce Mill in his BST commentary comments are often strained and frenetic forms of Christian life, our witness to how much we need to affirm with Jesus, it is finished. It is finished. There was a hymn writer called Philip Bliss. I don't know much about him. And, of course, he was called Bliss before he became a Christian and called Bliss before he started writing names, uh, writing hymns. But he was well-named. And in one of his hymns, he writes this, Dear Philip Bliss, Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah! What a saviour! May each of us echo in our hearts Christ's words, it is finished. And may each of us know that they are personal for us, that our Saviour has done everything we need. Let's pray together. We praise you, Lord, that you didn't flinch from the task. We praise you, Lord, that you didn't deviate. We praise you, Lord, that you underwent everything that you needed to for us and for our salvation. And we give you glory, Lord Jesus, that you completed the work given, that you died for our sins and were raised again for our justification. And, our Lord, each of us, we pray, Lord, you would give it to us by the power of your Spirit to rest on your finished work, to trust in your finished work, to find our hope in your finished work, and to persevere through life trusting in what you've accomplished until we meet you in glory. For your name's sake. Amen.